Welcome to the Hello, New Books and Network. Welcome back to New Books in the American West, a channel on the New Books Network of podcasts. I am Stephen Hausman. I'm an assistant professor in the history department at the University of St. Thomas in Minnesota, and I am your host for today's interview. I'm speaking with Anne Marie Todd. Dr. Todd is associate dean for academic programs and student success in the College of Social Sciences and is professor of communication studies at San Jose State University. And she is also the author of Valley of Hearts Delight, Environment and Sense of Place in the Santa Clara Valley, which came out with the University of California Press just a couple months ago, earlier this year in 2023. Welcome to the New Books Network, Anne Marie. Good to have you here. Thank you so much. I'm so pleased to be here. First, why don't we begin, as we traditionally do here on the New Books Network, by just hearing about who you are as an author and as a scholar and as a person. So what's what's your background? And I'm really interested in particular in how you became interested in history and like specifically the intersection between history and communications. Well, I grew up in Atlanta, Georgia. I came to San Jose in 2002 as an assistant professor in public communication at San Jose State, go Spartans. And I've been at San Jose State ever since in a, in a variety of roles. I've uh, still maintained my research as a faculty member, uh, but I've had various leadership roles. And I, I entered communication through policy debate and I, I became interested in public discourse, particularly the way that we write about things, way that newspapers or public documents talk about things and really tell the, the story or the history of our, of our society. I've always been interested in environmental issues. I was the child who put the sign next to the laundry room faucet about how to correct the dripping uh, and much to the chagrin of my parents. But I have been interested in the way that we think about environmental communication and, and I have to say I hope to have improved since that taped on sign over the sink. But my work in environmental communication is spans a variety of discourse, discursive contexts. So I'm interested in pop culture. I'm interested in, in history. I'm, I'm interested in activism. I'm interested in uh, public discourse and kind of esoteric social movements. Uh, but a thread throughout my work is mediated environmental discourse. And so how the way that we talk about nature, how the way that we see ourselves and the rest of the environment influences our attitudes and our perceptions of environmental issues. One other particular interest is the influence of environmental aesthetics on our ethical responsibility for environmental issues. So that has been a guiding guiding light, guiding force throughout a lot of my work. And I think the overarching way to describe what I do is look at how environmental rhetoric or persuasive discourse, which could be mediated, it could involve environmental aesthetics, it could involve advocacy. Uh, these are the ways that I, I'm interested in looking at how this kind of communication influences our understanding of the world and who we are. And I'm curious why uh, and how you decided to bring these questions that you're interested in to this place in particular, right? What, what brought you to the topic of this book specifically? Why a book about uh, uh, environment and ideas about environment and how people are communicating those ideas about environment in the Santa Clara Valley specifically? So my previous book was on the history of the American environmental movement. And part of that explored how people came west. And so I, I part of that is looking at the Sea America First movement in the early 1900s and, and looking at protecting and promoting the landscapes of the American West, but some financial gain and capitalist benefits, of course. Uh, but I explored the history of environmental patriotism and this idea that 
we can be patriotic toward our country and and protect the environment. And sometimes I think that that is a divorce. Those concepts are divorced today. And I, in that book, I look at how we can kind of promote a sense of place and promote a sense of responsibility. And so this book, as I thought about my next book, I, I really love rhetorical history. I, I love being in archives. I love being in libraries and really looking at how people talked about things in, in public discourse, uh, you know, in, in past years. But that book established my passion for environmental histories told through rhetoric or public discourse. And so I thought about, I started wanting to explore the environmental history of Silicon Valley. And so the Santa Clara Valley is, is now known as Silicon Valley. We're about 50 miles south of San Francisco. And I can, I can talk about this a little bit more, but, but specifically, you know, the future of this place, but specifically I started looking at, okay, what is the people talk about tech? We, we talk about people, but we're not talking about the environment or this, this area, this place of Silicon Valley. So I started researching it and I, I thought I'd be looking at the, the greening of Silicon Valley. I, I kept looking at green tech and, you know, there are a lot of things that have happened in terms of the environmental impact of Silicon Valley and, and the creation of this, of technology and development, but it didn't strike my, I just wasn't passionate about it. And this, I, this unknown to me, agricultural history kept coming up and I became very intrigued. So this, I, I kept hearing, I would do research and I kept hearing like, oh, Valley of Hearts Delight. Oh, before Silicon Valley, there were, there was fruit grown here. And as an, as a newcomer, you know, I grew up in the Southeast of, uh, of the United States and I really had been here 15 years or so at the time, 12 years. And I thought, why haven't I heard of this? And I kept, I kept becoming intrigued and I started asking around and with some of my colleagues who had done research in this area, I started looking into libraries and, and archives, and I started meeting some people. And there was one night in particular, uh, I, I saw in, in this online, I saw that there was an event that was held by the Saratoga um, Historical Society, the California Historical Pioneers. And I, so I went to this event, and it's held in the Saratoga Foothill Club. And, and I walk in, and, and it's, it's an event called the Fruit Cocktail Club. And there was this buzz of conversation, and, and I, I was the youngest person there by a few decades. And this was, I, I didn't know what to expect, but the MC uh, opens up the night and says, we're dedicating this movie night to a time when canners were kings and fruit packers were queens. <clears throat> and the crowd just roared. And I couldn't really understand what was, what was happening. And they start showing, not home movies, but arch archival footage of the canning industry here and the and the orchards here and so people were shouting out if they recognized someone on the screen um the mc described that this was a grand era where people were a lot happier than they than they are now and while i want to bracket that and say you know we shouldn't traffic in, in nostalgia that can be dangerous i wanted we can talk about that later but it was it was just i was struck by how you know how how people were so excited and there was a community and that's something that you don't always feel here in Silicon Valley today. So as I left the fruit cocktail club that night, I couldn't shake the sense that I was missing something. And I, I didn't share this rich culture or this rich heritage of this group. And, you know, Wallace Stegner, uh, environmentalist, historian, and actually local author here to the Bay Area, talks about missing a connection to local history and this inability to participate in this love of a place. And so that's really where I started to get interested. And as I looked in, as I looked further into the story, and you know, this book took seven years, so I spent a long time uh, thinking about uh, being in archives and, and doing interviews. And 
this is really an American story of the development of agricultural lands. This is about the transformation of, of rural regions. And to look at this interplay of you know, public history, of personal narratives, there's a relationship between individuals, the community, and the environment. And, and, and for me, this is not just about the Santa Clara Valley, but we could look at industrial transitions in the United States, other areas such as the Corn Belt, the Great Plains, citrus growers in Florida and Southern California. And so for me, I became intrigued about what this history of place could do to remind us of the significance of environment and, and community in, in our agricultural regions. And you just use that phrase sense of, of place. And that's really what you're what you're describing really is is a sense of place. And that's kind of a central concept to the book itself is this idea of place. Can you talk about what you mean by this exactly? What does it mean to have a sense of place in a place or, or just kind of what you mean by place in general here? Well, thank you. As a professor, I, I really love to be able to define my terms. You know? So I, I appreciate that. So place is, so first place, place is a physical or a geographical location. So, you know, we might ask your place or mine, but place is also a state of mind or an emotion. We might describe our happy place and places are significant because we invest them with meaning, with memories, with emotions, with, with our aspirations. And so a sense of place takes in all of that and is a way of seeing, knowing and, and understanding the world. And my argument, and I'm not the first to make this argument, there's a whole uh, bunch of, of scholars who talk about an environmental sense of place, but our sense of place is environmental. So the, the places that are important to us are not mere patches of ground or, or bare stretches of earth, but our environment influences our sense of belonging in our individual and collective identity. And an overarching question that guides my research is how we communicate and create and co-create a sense of place. And because as we have a relationship with place, this is how this affects our perspective with the world. It influences our sense of self. It influences our sense of community and, and our sense of in the environmental world. And I say, I argue, as others do, that our sense of place is profoundly rhetorical. So it's because the stories we tell about a place give it meaning. And so when I say a history of place, I'm really thinking about stories of place that offer environmental, cultural narratives that that influence our identity, both individual and collective. And so these historical narratives really animate my methodological focus of environmental rhetorical history. And I, I seek to understand how a history of place can be understood through a rhetorical articulation of a community's relationship with the environment. And, and I can get into this further, but the methodology uh, in this book expanded from simply just rhetorical archival work to including uh, convert background conversations and an oral um, toward oral history of this. And so really the intersection of personal and public narratives is something that for me is, is, is really intriguing in terms of how we, the perception of what happened and the stories that we tell in the public discourse of what happened. And so it's been, it's been really exciting. And I have met some incredible people that have a really strong sense of place. And so part of this work is to bring that to the surface to, to influence conversations we're having about Silicon Valley and the future of Silicon Valley. Is a fair way to, to summarize this idea of place kind of, uh, you know, take something like a valley, like a space, and then imbue it with human meaning and it becomes a place? Is that kind of a, a fair way to, to describe it? Yes, and yes. And I think, and I think that as we talk about human meaning, I want us to be able to expand that to, to go beyond this anthropocentric 
perceptions mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. understand our own connections and, 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 and role in the rest of the environment, but seeing ourselves as a part of nature rather than apart from nature. Well, let's talk about uh, about this valley. Can you kind of situate us on the map? Where is this particular part of California, the, San, the, the Santa Clara Valley? And uh, uh, what do you think it means to have a sense of place here specifically? So as I mentioned, the Santa Clara Valley is, is we know it now as Silicon Valley. Uh, it's 50 miles south of San Francisco. So if you are if you fly into San Francisco, you'll take the, the 101, Highway 101, and you'll drive through the San Francisco Peninsula to the South Bay. Uh, you'll drive past Stanford. You'll drive past Cupertino, where Apple's headquarters are. Uh, you'll drive past Menlo Park, where Meta's headquarters are. And you come into a valley. And there are, you know, Adobe's downtown. There are a lot of other uh, eBay's here. A lot of other tech companies. I, I should stop listing them because I, I won't stop. There are so many. Uh, but then you come to a flat valley that is surrounded by the eastern foothills, uh, the foothills to the east, and uh, the Santa Cruz Mountains to the west. And then it goes south toward places like Morgan Hill. You'll go down toward Monterey, Big Sur, and then toward Southern California. We have 300 days of sunshine a year. And uh, it is, as Norman Mailer once said, it is suburban sprawl with fabulous weather. And I can talk a little bit more about that, about uh, Silicon Valley. But you know what 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 the uh, the commentary of Silicon Valley is, but I think one way to think about it is that if you so if there's hiking in the hills that I described, so if you if you go up and you hike and in one of the parks around here and you look over the Santa Clara Valley, you get a great view, and so you can you can look at the physical place of Silicon Valley, and so you'll see office buildings with windows that you know and on a sunny day will wink in the sunlight. You have these houses. I'm reminded of ticky tacky houses that kind of crawl up the hillside, and you can see the various eras, the decades of uh, uh, suburban housing developments. You see Highway 101 that I just already mentioned as traffic inches along that and you see these city arteries and you know one of my one of my close friends we were hiking up there once and talking about this work you know spoiler alert if we go for a hike together I'll talk about the history of the valley so uh, but you know this person said it looks like a circuit board and it really does. You know, if you look over the valley today, it really spread before you is Silicon Valley. You can see the hangars of Moffett Field, which was built in 1933 and marks the birth of the aerospace industry, which in turn turned into Silicon Valley, bore Silicon Valley. You can see in the South Valley, the sleek black buildings of IBM's Almaden Labs, where Watson, that's the computer that won Jeopardy, is, continues to crunch data sets. And this is really different from 100 years ago. The Santa Clara Valley was legendary for its fruit. As I mentioned earlier, it was known the world over as the Valley of Heart's Delight. It was the premier fruit producing region in the United States. It was, and to look over the valley then, even up until the 1960s, uh, there was the largest continuous orchard the world had ever seen. It looked like a quilt of flowers because of all the tree blossoms. And I just, to, to just put this in perspective, so the, at the productive peak of the valleys in the 1920s, 86% of the land was agriculture. There were 24,000 farms, 10 millions fruit tree, 10 mil, tens of millions of fruit trees that produced 250 million pounds of fruit a year. And to kind of think about you know, what this meant is like now we think about we have a tech economy, but fruit defined the economy and then the community and the identity of the valley. And so when we think about a sense of place here, you know, summertime was simply called the season. 
because from May to September, everyone in the Valley supported the fruit industry in some way, picking fruit, packing fruit, uh, shipping fruit, driving trucks. The canneries were the Valley's biggest employers. So during the season, the canneries operated around the clock. They, they employed three shifts of workers. And during packing season, my interviewees all talked about the smell of cooked fruit permeating the air. <laughs> People say it was like driving through someone's kitchen. And, you know, some of my interviewees say they can't, they never, ever want to smell tomato sauce again because it smells like tomatoes. That was one of the products that emerged in the 1950s as the fruit industry was waning. But you also have just this smell, this kind of sickening smell of prunes that are being processed and all of that. And so it was really visceral. Uh, and, and, and fruit drove the Valley's economy. Everyone knew the price of prunes. The school school didn't start until the prunes were picked. So school children were, were, were picking prunes and you pick them, it's a long story, but you pick them from the ground, right? So you don't, you just get on your knees and you pick the prunes, uh, which are a certain type of plums that are, when they're ripe, they drop from the tree. And so it was easy for uh, school age children to, to pick them. But the Santa Clara Valley was an example of an integrated economy. It had a strong connection to land and community. And so that sense of, that's what sense of placement then. Now, currently, Many of the Valley's residents are transplants and they don't like myself and we don't share the history of that connection to a sense of place. And, you know, I, I think that we live in the Santa Clara Valley today. We lack this common heritage or the shared uh, history of place, which is one of which was my motivation to to write the book and, and discover for myself and, and discover with others what what this could mean. I'm curious uh, uh, about. Uh, I have another question about the Santa Clara Valley about about a century ago, the late 19th and early 20th century. You talk a lot in the book about how a sense of place can be kind of constructed or can be marketed in certain ways. And you use the phrase, which actually is the title of the book, the Valley of Heart's Delight. I'm wondering how uh, local boosters, how local institutions, how they tried to shape this region's image in this particular way. That, that's, I mean, there's so much here. So, like, uh, so let me, let me start. So John Muir visited the Santa Clara Valley in 1868. He, he came to California and he passed through the Santa Clara Valley on his, on his way to Yosemite. And he wrote about the bloom time of year. He wrote about the, the sparkle in the air, the spice, the, the beautiful uh, views of, of flowers and, and blossoms on, on the hillsides and in the valley. And, but what this really did, you know, he, he, people weren't reading his work as much as we are now, of course, but it really marked the beginning of cross-country travel to California and thus the Santa Clara Valley. So 1869, there's the completion of the Transcontinental Railroad and the Santa Clara Valley and the rest of the West became a destination for East Coast Americans. So it was, you know, a place to visit, but also a place to live. And with these new cities that were growing, uh, boosters, so civic and uh, civic leaders, uh, chambers of commerce and railroads wanted the business. They wanted people to come here. And so travel writing became a, a thing, uh, right? People wrote essays that were published in pamphlets and magazines and newspapers and describing the wonders of the Calif of California. And so, you know, railroad executives also promoted this as well. The president of the Southern Pacific proclaimed that nowhere have I seen a combination of beautiful, of the beauty in nature and the rich in every sense of nature. And um, there was a sense of the Santa Clara Valley was such grandeur. And so, of course, the railroads, they were the crucial link between the Santa Clara Valley and the East Coast. And they that, you know, they had a vested interest. So entrepreneurs promoted tourism and development of the region. This was, you know, as I mentioned, chambers of commerce, but Boards of trade, there were commercial leagues, improvement clubs, 
And so in beginning in the 1870s, promoters published dozens of brochures and pamphlets and small books that promoted the valley. And they might be just a short brochure that talked about how beautiful it is, or it could be a 30-page booklet that had endless statistics about the agricultural yields. They bragged about the miles of paved roads, the electrical networks, and you know, because people in the East Coast didn't have such a sense of what the West was, was like at this time. But they, these were offered evidence for its productivity and, and benefits to, to residents. And particularly in the Santa Clara Valley, while the Blossoms were a tourist destination, the, it was really about getting people to move here. And this is one of the, the, the two uh, eras that I talk about in the book of a promotion of people moving to the Santa Clara Valley. So brochures promised a life of opportunity. Uh, in the San Jose Mercury uh, newspaper, as it was called at the time, published a book called Sun, Sun, Sh- excuse me, Sunshine, Fruit, and Flowers. And it really tried to capture the idea of the valley as an ideal society with the California version of the uh, American dream. And you know, post, uh, promoters also promoted a sense of urgency. If you are coming to California, do not delay. Uh, and so that was where the Garden of the World uh, and the Valley of Hearts Delight, those phrases, uh, you know, grew and or grew in popularity. And these these ideas, these these boosters used both visual rhetoric, so images and, and paintings of the valley, but also written description to promote this valley that had unmarked beauty. Um, and so it worked. The publicity efforts were wildly successful. By 1900, more than 60,000 people called the Santa Clara Valley home. Uh, Booster literature aesthetically validated um, the valley scenery and the postcards and advertisements and then crate labels that commodified the valley as an agricultural um, opportunity. And in the book, you include a lot of images of those uh, postcards and that booster material, and you can kind of see why it worked. It's very effective. It really does show this place to be, uh, you know, uh, whether whether true or, or exaggerated or, or what, it really kind of paints this image of this agricultural wonderland. So uh, the boosters did a good job, even from 21st century eyes. <laughs> I agree. I agree. Um but of course, you know, as historians, we study change. And over the, the kind of first half of the 20th century, agricultural work of the type done in the Santa Clara Valley changes dramatically. So what changes and how do those changes then also alter the sense of place in this region's communities? So um, as I mentioned, you know, the Santa Clara Valley was the fruit packing capital of the United States. It was the fruit capital of the world, as some boosters said, but really at one time, it was 90% of the output of California's agricultural output. Uh, it had a concentration of orchards and packing houses. It was, it was a fruit factory. And so these practices, as I mentioned, fostered this agricultural community. And, and this, this work fostered a sense of place. And it had this, this attachment to the land was nurtured by daily labor and identification with the practices of work. And so, for example, one of the interviews that I uh, that I've, I've done and that other people have written about, you know, the clang of the prune bucket, and so how heavy it was as you drag it along the base of the orchard, uh, the pain um, and suffering of the prune pickers who had to wear knee pads if they didn't have them, they they were sore. The the visceral experience of being in the apricot shed where entire families would work and there would be prune fights and apricot fights fights among the children. And so, you know, I'm not trying to, to gloss over the difficulty and of this physical labor. And it wasn't just people who lived here locally, but a lot of migrant workers were here and their conditions were not always great. And I just want to acknowledge that. And the, 
the for agricultural workers this everydayness the ways that the the process grew harvested and processed fruit really defined the relationship with the land so in the in the late 1930s and on but it's you know there's a lot more history than I will tell here about the mechanization of agriculture and the ways that the mechanization changed the nature of agricultural work is, is something that we can see across the across the country but as I look at the specific processing of, of fruit, the embodied practices of fruit processing became disembodied work. And this is why I talk about three ways that mechanization changed the nature of agricultural work. So this first is that work became disembodied. And so initially, as it would be family fields and farmhouses where prunes, for example, were grated and dipped and dried by hand. But in the canneries, this was a stark contrast because the machines did this work and the, and the human the agricultural workers really did a they were in charge of monitoring machines and so in the cutting shed for example that was where people cut cots apricots and people moved trays of apricots from stack to stack in the cannery fruit moved to various different stations via conveyor belt and so that really set the pace of the work so the human bodies moved the fruit through the orchard, as I mentioned, the weight of the buckets and trays of fruit. There was an, This provided an overall sense of what was happening, but as the conveyor belt removed the physical movement of people through the faculty, sorry, for the fa factory, uh, the stream of fruit, you know, that was endless. It came from a cart. There was not a, a direct connection to the orchard. And so the sense of place became a little more disembodied in that way. The second way is that the mechanization of work in the cannery and the orchard separated workers from the environment. And so the work wasn't as dirty, literally, there wasn't as much soil in the work that they did. And so it was. It means that just the machines kind of separated fruit workers from the natural environment, uh, weakening this intimate sense of place that was derived from working with, with the land. And so, you know, just specifically when the work moved to the cannery the workers left the natural environment and they were they were they were not in canneries are not in placed locations but they they are they are they could be anywhere and i'll i can repeat that refrain when we talk about silicon valley but finally and perhaps most importantly mechanization changed the communal work or the communal nature of agricultural work and so there was a cooperative and social aspect of the work in the orchards as families worked together and and uh and in the cutting sheds and you know, this was lost in some of the larger canneries. And so the interviews that other people have done and published in, in some secondary sources that I used show that cannery workers early on really did develop kinships. These were largely along gender and uh, ethnic lines, but uh, but these were over carried out over lunch breaks or commuting to work because the uh, interviews that I did show that the noise of the cannery and the stationary workstation discouraged this conversation and camaraderie. And so again, I don't want to say, oh, people were having so much fun in the quote unquote good old days because it was hard work and there were a lot of other there were a lot of issues but it's also interested to note that the the cannery distance workers from the fruit and the environment and, and each other uh, in that way and so what I think larger is that the it shows how the industrialized cannery changed the sense of place in the valley from a focus on environment and community to a focus on efficiency and economy you know, you were you were describing that, and I was just imagining, you know, these these these, these workers who suddenly don't have like dirt under their fingernails anymore, right? And what a what a great way of thinking about and and as you just described, like people being more physically and like in a very literal sense distant from the land itself. It's a, a really this you know thinking about place in those terms is is really is really useful. Um, 
And of course, there's more changes to come, right? Especially in the era after World War II, when the Santa Clara, when change in the Santa Clara Valley uh, uh, becomes even more profound. So, how does World War II, and especially the post-war era, how does this change the valley even further on the the road to today? Well, there are a lot of factors, and so I'll focus on a couple here. Uh, the first is that. Uh, because there was a, this was where the soldiers on the Pacific front came through. And so after the war, people that had been here, they remembered this gorgeous place. And so combined with a, a, a propaganda campaign, people were, you know, it brought the Santa Clara Valley into public view on, on a nationwide scale for the first time. Um, and San Jose city leaders were, were tired of a city of a city that feasted in the summer while the canneries were operating and starved in the winter. So feasting in the summer, everyone's happy, there's a lot of work, and then they, they notice it as starved in the winter. And I, I should note that San Jose it defines ourselves, we define ourselves today as the capital of Silicon Valley, uh, but it's the largest, the 10th largest city in the United States today, and it was, a, it was the biggest city at that time as well. And it had visions of getting bigger. So in 1944, the city ran a campaign to attract new non-fruit industries. And it was wildly successful. In five years, 2,000 companies moved to the valley. Uh, that included IBM, who moved to the, to the Pacific Coast, uh, downtown San Jose, because of its potential as an industrial district um, after the war. Uh, and this really marked the beginning of a new era. Um, in 1950, Dutch Hammond came to San Jose as a new city manager, and his goal explicitly stated was to make San Jose another Los Angeles. And, and he had a vision for San Jose as a modern city that was based in economic development and population growth. And so as a result of his efforts, San Jose's growth and development was absolutely unbridled. Uh, he... He had a lot of different strategies for expanding San Jose. One of them was a strategy called strip annexation. And San Jose would annex territory around these revenue generating development projects. So getting IBM here, then San Jose would annex the territory around uh, this, this project where IBM was gonna move uh, in outlying land because that was cheap and most attractive. And then they would just annex the street that led to that property from the existing uh, city boundary. And this was known as cherry stem annexations, right? So that little tiny strip of land uh, was the stem there. And these, had, there was a lot to this, but they created really serious obstacles to a efficient public services, for example. Um, but it also meant that it really started separating out the agricultural land. And so Dutch Hammond had assistants who fanned out across the valley. They would go farm by farm and they would pester orchardists and farmers to allow their property to be annexed. And they were so persuasive and powerful that they became known as Dutch's Panzer Division. So Dutch Hammond, they were known as Dutch's Pan Panzer Division, which as, as people may know is named after the name offensive line of the German army in World War II. I mean, that people said that they just plowed through the farms like tanks and nothing would impede their progress. And so, um, the, the farmers who resisted saw the land around them annexed. The assumption was that they would inevitably have to lead, yield and become part of San Jose. And so it really, like the annexation was really about territorial expansion. It created boundaries for political and economic reasons, regardless of environmental features or agricultural plots. 
it wasn't just Dutch Hammond. It was, you know, Joe Ritter, who was editor of the San Jose Mercury newspaper. He was an ally. He believed in the quote unquote gospel of growth. Uh, he famously said trees don't read newspapers. And so there was this whole sense that the growth machine was un unstoppable. There was a significant transformation between 1950 and 1970. San Jose saw staggering growth. It grew inside from in size from 17 to 137 square miles. For comparison, in the next 50 years, it grew 40 miles. The population increased uh, between 1950 and 1970 from 92,000 to 460,000. That's a 400% increase. And for comparison, in that same period, California's population grew 77% in the same period. The city added acres weekly. Uh, in the, for example, in the first week, I think it was yeah, October 1967, San Jose added more than 500 acres and 7,200 people. And so that's just one week, but it's an example of how fast this growth was. Urbanization happened very quickly by the 1980s. Valley farmland, which was 86% in the 1920s, was 10% of the valley. And of 39 canneries in 1950, just two major canneries remained in 1986. And so, you know, I really focus on stories, but sometimes the numbers tell this story most dramatically. And it really shows that San Jose grew from a farmland to metropolis. And the, the, it basically, it celebrated, the, the city leaders celebrated the move to the modern city and that there really wasn't a compromise. Now, what's interesting to me is that... Uh, Everyone I interviewed, I said, what was the moment that you saw this? Because historically, we look back retrospectively, we say, oh, wow, this happened so quickly. And it wasn't like people didn't notice, but there wasn't this dark, there, there wasn't people, it's not that people weren't paying attention, but it's kind of confounding that people couldn't, couldn't say, oh my gosh, yes, this happened so quickly. Uh, there was like a, a strip mall in there, a farm that was pulled out there, an orchard pulled out there, here and there. And it just, it seemed to, it was so fast, it seemed to happen slowly. So we see this as an American, you know, this is an American story of urbanization, and we see this across the country. But what was remarkable here, that was remarkable what happened here in the Santa Clara Valley for two reasons. The first is that the reason that this was such an agricultural, uh, successful agricultural community was that the, there's, the soil here is astonishingly fertile. So the mountains that I described in the beginning of the interview, the, the water that flows down those into the valley brings all of the minerals and this alluvial soil is astonishingly fertile. So houses were not built on this barren or unproductive land, but they replaced incredibly valuable land that supported a thriving economy. And as one of my interviewees and a longtime orchardist here said, we paved over the best soil in the world. The second reason is that this is remarkable is that the rate that it happened was, was so fast, the rate of the development, that it gained national attention. And as I mentioned, it didn't have it, people weren't paying attention here. And actually in 1970, Newsweek published an article. And I have the quote here. It said, growth came so fast to San Jose and with such disastrous results that the city's experience serves as a dire warning of what can happen if residents fail to watch what's happening in their community. Man, that's that's quite a that's 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 quite a, a quote there, and you know, I don't really know how quick to add, ask this this question. Like, you just spent several minutes explaining these changes, but how did this happen so fast? It's funny to ask because you just told me how it happened so fast, but like this truly does happen overnight, and it's just it's, it really is astonishing how quickly the change in the Santa Clara Valley occurs. It is it is remarkable, and it really. 
you can see as you start to look at, so one of the things that I did is that I looked at newspaper articles. It's you know a, a very strong uh, and meaningful area of archival research. And the headlines of the San Jose Mercury News show you how, how fast it happened, but also show you the glee with which the city promoters, city leaders and developers um, happened. I think that you know, there are just two other, briefly, there are kind of two other things. The first is that, I've, as I mentioned, is the, the rhetoric of the newspapers, and it really portrayed growth as inevitable. And so uh, that really kind of, it, 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 it was the narrative was, was already happening. And part of that was this, uh, the way that developers were and entrepreneurs were working together. So uh, Dutch Hammond had a, a, a group called the um, Buck of the Month Club. And it was a riff on the Book of the Month Club. And it was developers, bankers, um, leaders in, in tech industries, and city leaders. And they were making decisions in their kind of kitchen cabinet uh, that, about how we were gonna, they were going to develop things and how they were going to, to do things. And then he would basically have the city council. He would meet with them beforehand and persuade them before the meetings. And so it added to the sense of inevitability. The other part is the economic situation of farmers. And so, you know, or fruit trees don't last forever. And around the 1960s through the 1980s, each, there were a variety of different crops that had some issues. And so uh, that, that not only, you know, weather related, but a, a, a brown rot got into the apricot orchard. And so it spread. And that's, you know, we could talk about monoculture and issues with monoculture for a long time. But um, and then you also had the pear crop in the early 1980s that you had these fruit trees that were aging, you had fruit trees that are becoming diseased. And so the the decision for the farmers of whether to reinvest and plant new trees which then take about seven years to be fully productive these were harder these were financial decisions where it just became hard to make that and so if you have children who don't want to continue in the work as we see across the urbanization of america but you also have these you know pretty sweet deals and and, and a lot of pressure to be, um, you know, to, to be to sell your land and and be part of the development, uh, which of, of Silicon Valley, which seems ine seems inevitable, and all of the work that you're, all of the stuff you read in the newspapers, that helps to explain why there was just such momentum and it happened so quickly. And in the conclusion of your book, you uh, and you kind of mentioned this a little bit earlier. You talk about the Santa Clara Valley today, about Silicon Valley, ba basically, um, and you, you describe it as a region that exudes uh, a sense of, rather than a sense of place, a sense of placelessness, right? A, a lack of a sense of place. What do you mean by that? And how did the valley lose its sense of place? How did this happen? And and what does it mean for the valley today? Well. So, you know, I think that I want to kind of pull back for a second and say, where is Silicon Valley? And because I think this explains, this helps to explain what happens. And so you, you may have, so, okay, so you, let's ask Google, right? As, as you do, we, all, we ask Google everything these days. And so I did this kind of on a lark. I, I got into my car, I, I put Silicon Valley into Google Maps, and I, and I followed the directions. And they end with merge onto CA-237, which is a state little state highway here. So I'm crossing this freeway span. I'm driving this freeway span and I'm crossing railroad tracks and my phone chirps, you know, I've got the map app on. It's like, you have arrived. And 
first finally someone's noticed. No, I'm just kidding. But I'm, you know, I'm still moving. I'm, I'm unable to stop. And that, that I'm looking around and I'm su surrounded by houses and office parks. And that's the, the iconic, you know, kind of the iconic landscape of Silicon Valley. And this is the thing, like Santa, Silicon Valley is a non-place. It could be anywhere, you know, anodyne shopping malls, there are agnostic subdivisions, uh, freeways, office parks, parking lots. And these are the hallmarks of what scholars call as non-place. And so, you know, you've, we've heard this before, right? There's a reason we can't find Silicon Valley. It's, it's not so much a place as it is an idea. So more than with any specific landmark or, or point of geography, like Silicon Valley is identified with the spirit of innovation. Uh, you know, the, the TripAdvisor reviews is something I write about in the book. And, and this is just, you know, this is, this is, uh, this is, I think this is, it's, it's, it's sad, but it's funny is that, you know, we have tourists on, on Trip, TripAdvisor who go and who visit the area and report trying to see Facebook. And, you know, now it's meta, of course, but taking a sign, you know, taking a picture with your thumb up outside of the Facebook uh, sign. And, and so the TripAdvisor reviews, people are very disappointed, you know, at Google, there's a shop and you can walk around campus, but you can't use the Google bikes, not worth going out of your way for. And so, the, these reviews show that what we have in Silicon Valley are these unremarkable but really symbolic you know, symbolic places that, that are the emblematic of non-place. And so, you know, we have this, uh, it, it, we have, there are a couple reasons why it is, it is so elusive, the sense of place. You know, the first is that uh, Silicon Valley is, um, it, it, it's made, pop well, I've already talked about the first, which is that it could be anywhere. And so it's this, there are no distinct places. It's, there are standardized landscapes and these housing tracks and these, and these freeways. Um, but also because Silicon Valley is characterized by an intense mobility. And, and we, this is the place where placelessness is made possible. You know, I, I talk with people, I say, you know, we, we can be anywhere and everywhere. Uh, we hail rides with strangers. You know, we answer our doorbells remotely. We have packages delivered anywhere. And it's thrilling this lack of place. We, this computing technology has really allowed you know, virtual living. And so while we promote connectivity and we also are promoting non-attachment. So we have these you know, fiber optic cables, for example, that connect our ideas literally, uh, but untether us from geographic place. And you know, I would say that you know, electronic media have really weakened the relationship between social situations and our physical places. And so I just like, I want people to think about it. We look at our phones as we walk by our neighbors. We check the weather online rather than going outside. And, and so this, we, we're connected, but we have this non-attachment through this profound efficiency. Our, our connections are not bound to place to the valley itself, but rather it's this intense mobility that really frees us from kind of geographical constraints and, and it's reduced the need of place-based communities. And so the third reason, so the first is that Silicon Valley could be anywhere. The second is there's connectivity instead of rootedness. And the third is that this cachet of innovation, and this is not new, this is historical, is this pursuit of the latest electronic gadget or smartphone application. There's this emphasis on the cutting edge, which is like this urgency of the present moment, non-place. There's this, there's not a room for history. Uh, and in fact, a 1992 ad from the Intel Corporation urges, you know, don't be encumbered by past history go out and do something wonderful. And that's one of the founders, uh, one of the founders of, of Intel quoting that they're quoting there. And I think that this just epitomizes Silicon Valley's disregard for the past. It's an innovation, it's an emphasis on innovation and in the future. We have social media's focus on constant updates and the 
and the planned obsolescence. And then also you get the planned obsolescence, both hardware and software. That mean we're just focusing on the future. Well, what's the next iPhone update? Um, but we don't really regard the physical environment. And it's what some people have called means that San Jose and Silicon Valley is place agnostic. And the danger there is that this is, means we have an absence of texture of our rich cultural and historical heritage. And, you know, really server farms have replaced fruit farms. And so the primacy of the idea has superseded uh, the importance of place. And I see this as dangerous. Uh, it means that we turn our heads when our historic buildings are torn down. Uh, our cities don't have identities. And e even worse, we neglect our communities and, and the uh, protection of our environment. And so, you know, there's a, there is a longing for place-based connection. And I, I think that we, the book, I write the book to say, hey, we, we need to pay attention and we need to not let this, let this happen again. Um, as someone that, that spends probably too much time on the internet reading uh, people's comments and things, I loved that you were using TripAdvisor reviews as primary sources because of course they are, right? Like this, this is how people are thinking about these places today. I thought that was very, that was some innovative, innovative source work right there. I really, I really like that. Um, you know, you end this book in the current moment that we've just been, been talking about sort of where the Santa Clara Valley stands today and its sense of placelessness as uh, Silicon Valley. But I'm wondering what you see as the Valley's future. I always hesitate, of course, to ask historians to make future predictions, right? But you talk a bit about this in the book. Um, could, or maybe a better way to say it is, how could a sense of place return to the Silicon, to uh, the Santa Clara Valley? Yeah, I hesitate to... <laughs> to answer, to answer. Uh, but yeah. I think that um, I think I'll, I'll talk about this in, in two ways and you know it's easy to say you know so first we must remember history right of course there's the adage or the aphorism that if you know those who don't remember history are doomed to repeat it and, and you know I think that that's obvious in some ways but I'm thinking about something a little bit more than just history but really really starting to value heritage discourse and so I mentioned um that this is, uh, you know, I mentioned that this is like one of the things that as I walked into that fruit cocktail club event early on in my research, that there was such a sense of community and heritage. And that is something that I think we, it's easy to dismiss. And I'm not saying that we need to live in old buildings or that we need to have, you know, historical reenactments, although no, you know, no shade to anyone that wants to do that. I think that it's really the sense of, looking at where that discourse is today and valuing that discourse. So in the Santa Clara Valley, there are numerous places, physical locations such as parks and museums that have you know, interpretive exhibits or, or otherwise are preserving the aspects of fruit history. And so there are heritage orchards, um, there are working farms. And I'll, I'll get to that because that's my second kind of takeaway or my recommendation here. Uh, but the, these historical resources actually offer opportunities for civic engagement. And they, they ask us to think about the questions about heritage and memory. So one of my interviewees at said, you know, I do this because it provides me a sense of calm. He's still he's an active working active farmer on an, or working orchard. And he says it provides me a sense of calm in this crazy orchard of ours. I mean, sorry, crazy world of ours. The orchard might be crazy, too, but crazy world of ours. And he says, I just worry that in two generations, no one's going to know what an heirloom apricot tastes like. And that idea of this, this taste of history, this visceral experience of, of what this valley has produced, I think that that's, that's important. And, and so thinking about what we can do to preserve an important part of our culture and heritage, to think about like just even catching glimpses of, 
the farming life or the the orcharding life like who who are the families that planted these deep roots i think it reminds us of this but not only the high quality of the fruit that was produced from this rich soil but the the community connections and the sense of place and the environment this sense of environmental responsibility so you know, I, I think that uh, the her pre preservation of heritage discourse is, is an important part of that. And I'm seeing the interest in this book. You know, once you publish a book, of course, you can't, you, there are no more revisions, which is a relief. <laughs> but also, there's something, I, I wish there were opportunities for incorporating additional perspectives. So now that the book is out, I'm meeting more and more people who grew up here. I've, I've gotten to visit more spaces that, that preserve this historical discourse. And so really thinking about ways to keep those connections open. There's a, it's not just a generation, but there, there is a community of people who are eager to have the story told. And I, and I think there are opportunities to do that. And, and it's happening and in ways that acknowledge not only uh, the communities around fruit, but also communities that were marginalized and, and contributed to this, uh, the history, the agricultural history of the valley, sometimes at the, at, uh, experiencing extreme harassment, violence, and, and racial discrimination. And so that's what I mean when I say earlier on, I said earlier on, I don't want to traffic in nostalgia. We have to think about marginal the marginalization and oppression that has happened throughout history in these spaces. And that is, we shouldn't shy away from that. We should, we should think about that and incorporate that. And I think the second thing that I see as a sense of place returning is, is local farms. And you know, there are still 24,000 acres of farmland in Santa Clara County. That number may sound familiar because earlier I said there were, there were 24,000 farms in the 1920s. So now it's down to 24,000 acres. But this, you know, there are 8,000 agricultural workers in the county, and it's still about 800 million in economic output annually. And so in the, in the book, I, I do an interview with um, Sam Thorpe, who is a second generation farmer, third, sorry, third generation farmer uh, in, the, in South in Santa Clara County. And the farm is called Spade and Plow. And it's generations working together to change the food system. And it's really not a throwback. It shows this future of sustainable agriculture. But the interview with him was so illuminating because it shows kind of this disconnect that still exists. He said he has friends that are like, wow, man, you get to be outside all day. That just must be awesome. And he wants to say, yeah, you know, when in July, when I'm up at 4 a.m. so that I can beat the 102 degree heat, uh, and I'm sweating and my back hurts and, you know, we have to do all of this to just try to make ends meet. You know, there, there, there's a way that we still romanticize the agricultural, the, the, the farm life. And he's like, you know, some days I'd love to be in an air conditioned office. And so there's really kind of thinking about how local farms can reinvigorate uh, a connection with our food. And I also talk about Vegilution Community Farm, which is not in South County, but it's a six acre farm under two freeways in San Jose. And this urban farm engages community, promotes a sense of place through, a, through community interaction and civic engagement. And the, there was an article a couple of years ago that talked about these urban ag startups. And so that's, you know, thinking about it, of course, we use Santa, uh, Silicon Valley terminology to talk about it, but there's a real sense of hope here. And, and, I, and I do think uh, a sense of place. And so if we think about our heritage discourse and we, and we promote that and we, we, we work on that and we have opportunities for people to engage with our history, and then we also support local farms, I think that's where really a sense of place can be cultivated and, and reemerge. 
And then as we begin to wrap up here, um, I always like to ask my guests as sort of a, a summarizing point to put themselves in the, the position of one of their readers, kind of remembering back to this book, maybe a couple years further on down the line, um, uh, uh, thinking about what you would hope that that reader would remember or take away from this book. And I'm sure that it's going to be some of the things that you already mentioned a bit, but maybe just put a finer point on it. What do you hope a reader would take away and remember from your book after having read it? Oh, uh, wow. Uh, okay. I, yeah, that's, again, I'm, I'm hesitant to summarize the, summarize the one thing. I would say uh, that there are a lot of opportunities for connection with our history. But I think that a main takeaway for me, and I, I'm kind of going to go back a little bit to the theoretical here, is the importance of a place aesthetic. And so a place aesthetic means that there's a sense of an appreciation of a place and an emotional attachment. And so this aesthetic connection cultivates a view of a place as beautiful and, and worth preserving. And one of the things that we saw as the orchards disappear, that little usable green space replaced them. And so now we have, a, there's a lot of concrete here. There's tract homes, commercial signs, freeway traffic. And so uh, scholars that are more qualified and expert in my, than myself can talk about the impact of urbanization on open space. But one of the things that I think we see in the orchards is the real benefit to, to living here and, 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 and air quality, uh, and then also this, this almost intangible, intangible benefit and intangible joy that comes with living within the beauty of the natural environment and appreciating that. And so really thinking about open space and a preservation of, and conservation of natural resources. And so that kind of like thinking about aesthetics and really appreciating the aesthetics of the environment I think that that's a really important way, an entry point for people thinking about environmental responsibility, but it's that connection to the aesthetics that can, that creates a connection <clears throat> and a sense of place that then can promote ethical responsibility. And that's that's what I hope that we see not only here, but across the country as we, we face more calls for development, which is, you know, development is I'm not anti-development, that can be important, but I, I as we do that, as we think about the future of a place where we live, we really think about what is our responsibility? And, and I think that can start with the aesthetics of place. I love that. I love any time people can use history as a way of empowering people in the present, right? And I think that your your book does a really good job of, of, of doing just that. Um, finally, I always like uh, to get a preview from my guests at the end of the episode about what they've been working on uh, uh, uh you know, in the interim since the book came out. I know this book is a very recent book. It's only been out for a couple months now, but I'm curious what you've been working on next or what you plan to be working on next, what your ideas are for, for, for future history work. Well, thank you. I really, I really appreciate that. It is, uh, you know, I, I feel like you just became an accountability partner because if I say this out loud, then I'll, I'll have to do it. But I, I... <laughs> I'll be keeping tabs on you. Exactly. <laughs> Well, uh, so I'm, I, you know, my, as I mentioned, my environmental communication research uh, goes in a bunch of different directions, and I'm currently working with a group of other educators on um, interdisciplinary climate change uh, education and, and thinking about this course that we developed a long time ago. And, you know, I should say, as people at universities, as faculty, we, we do research, and then also a large part of our daily and monthly life is, uh, is, is, taken, is devoted to teaching. 
And that I think is a passion for many of us. And so really thinking about the ways that we communicate about climate change, the ways that we communicate about environmental, this probably the most, one of the most pressing environmental issues of our time and how we work with students on that and, and, and train, that's not quite the word I want, but support and, and develop capacity in our students to, to support that. So that's something that I've been working on. Um, I, I have a project in mind and here's where the accountability comes in. So I'm, I'm interested in a couple different things, but the one I'll, I'll pick up now is that I've started to kind of dabble in, uh, is this idea of gardening after World War II. So I seem to keep coming back to a transformation in our, in our nation after World War II. In my previous book, uh, that was the, the conservation ads of World War II and how that promoted this conservation mindset or lack thereof, uh, once we hit the consumer economy of the 1950s. But what we see in this, what I'm interested in now, is what we see how the victory gardens of World War II transformed into the suburban gardens. And uh, it became an obsession. There was an obsession with the lawn, which people have written about. Uh, but then this idea of gardening in your backyard and, and producing your own vegetables and your own food and, and what that means about a sense of place, uh, what that means about land use and the way that we perceive public and private property. So I'm intrigued by that. I've, uh, I've got, I've received when my, when my grandmother passed, I've got a bunch of her old gardening books from post-World War II and others have been, have been donated to me by some family friends. And so really kind of looking at the discourse of gardening after World War II. So for anyone who's listening that's a gardener, that might sound really exciting. For others, that might seem really esoteric and potentially boring. But I think that from there, we can take some broader, we can take some broader conclusions uh, about how we view our how we view our space and how we view land ownership and 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 really home and a sense of place there. I will say uh, that that um, you know I'm sure that your audience is on you know can't wait and has bated breath for that. But uh, I am taking on a new position as I'm associate dean right now, and in July 1st I'll be starting as dean at the College of Social Sciences. And so here at San Jose State, and I'll be devoting time to really supporting the faculty and students here, uh, and really kind of and advocating for our college. And so um, the I, and I say this for two reasons. The first is that. I think part of being a scholar and continuing to be a scholar is balancing the work that we do, as I mentioned, whether it's teaching or whether it's administration, but really continuing to carve out time for our passion of research. And even if it seems so divorced or separate from what we do in a day to day, it's, it's critical for us to continue to, to engage in scholarship. And I, and I see that as something that's really important and, and really makes me happy. The second point that I'll make and I'll conclude there is that this sense of place is related to everything we do. And so as Dean of a College of Social Sciences with 12 different distinct departments, including history and including communication studies, so kind of my two areas, and including environmental studies, how do we cultivate a sense of community, a sense of belonging, and how does the university, and, and we're, I mean, San Jose State is in the middle of downtown San Jose, how do we connect with the community? How do we help support and foster a sense of place that really is uh, connected to our community, connected to our surrounding environment? And so I will not be, uh, I will not be walking away from the Santa Clara Valley uh, sense of place or community anytime soon. Uh, and I'm just, I'm, I'm thrilled to, to have made connections with people with this book, through this book, uh, that hopefully I'll be able to continue to, to think about what we might be doing to support a sense of place in Silicon Valley uh, in the future. 
Well, congratulations, Anne-Marie, on, uh, on the promotion. That's very exciting. Thank you. And nerve-wracking, but also exciting. <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Anne-Marie Todd is, uh, well, currently Associate Dean for Academic Programs and Student Success in the College of Social Sciences, but soon to be Dean of the College of Social Sciences and is Professor of Communication Studies at San Jose State University, um, smack dab in the middle of the Santa Clara Valley. And uh, she is also the author of Valley of Hearts Delight, Environment and Sense of Place in the Santa Clara Valley, which came out with the University of California Press just recently in 2023. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining me today, Emery. It was a lot of fun talking to you. Thank you so much. It's just a, such a pleasure to be here. And thank you for the work that you do to promote history, environmental scholarship, and thinking about the American West.